I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, one and all, and a warm welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo, and whether you're a brand new listener or one of our old friends, it's great to have you with us. And here we are then, Series 9, Episode 2. And we're feeling pretty darn excited because today we're joined by two fabulous debut authors who are limbering up to go head to head in a war of the words. My first guest is a former book editor who then worked for 10 years as the head of drama series at HBO. She divides her time between Los Angeles, Cape Cod and London, which has made me insanely jealous already and is here to tell us about her debut novel the paper palace miranda cowley hello welcome to book off lovely to see you thank you for having me i'm thrilled and totally unprepared (laughs) (laughs) and my second guest grew up in a crematorium in birmingham similar to cape cod in many ways and is now a creative writing supervisor at lucy cavendish college cambridge her debut novel a terrible kindness was recently a radio 2 book club choice that's a mark of quality and was shortlisted for the bridport peggy chapman andrews award here to tell us more about that very book and her writing journey it's joe browning row hello to you Hello, thanks very much for having me. What a pleasure to have you both here. And um, Miranda, do we find you in Los Angeles or London or Cape Cod or some other exotic location? Uh, you find me in the very unexotic Los Angeles uh, <laughs> <laughs> at nine in the morning. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I love I, I love the time difference thing here because... Um, to, for, for me and Joe, it's it's Friday night and it's Friday morning exactly. for you, Miranda. And <laughs> yeah. of course, I've taken this opportunity to crack open a beer. That's how <laughs> relaxed I'm feeling about this whole <sighs> thing. But but Joe is very professional and just sticking to water. You are? <laughs> well, OK. I, I need about 10 more cups of espresso. But having said that. <laughs> <laughs> and how are you feeling, uh, Joe, after the last week or so that's just been filled with so many things and glorious <laughs> things you know with this book <laughs> yeah it is it has it's crazy it's been a whirlwind and a, a friend of mine who is in the media said to me um hold tight joe and i did say to him well if you could be really specific about actually how i do that that'd be really helpful because the you know you, these things happen and you you know you're supposed to process them and you just don't know how so you just sort of bumble along and and try and enjoy it but no it's been it's been crazy lots of interviews and lots of technical nightmares but i'm doing all right <laughs> Good. We're glad to hear it. And it's lovely to have you both here. And you you do, you sort of know each other a bit, do you? Because you, well, you certainly um, are both fans of each other's books. And I think you've been in touch, in authorly touch. But this is maybe the first time you've done something together? Absolutely. And uh, yes, we've been in a very oblique authorly touch. That's right. However, That's right. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I read I read Joe's extraordinary novel and and loved it so much. So um, thank you. Well, and yeah. same same here. And actually, if I wasn't head going head to head against Miranda, I probably would have pitched her book. And actually, as I'm saying it, I should maybe do that because then she might go easy on me because she'd want me to win. <laughs> so I do a sudden change. The only the only thing about doing that though joe is that either way she wins so you know oh that's true we can't have that that's true that's not 
Yeah. It's a, you're going to be it. fine. You're going to win. Don't <laughs> worry. I'm, and, and, and I'm very competitive, but I, I, this time I'm giving it up to you because you deserve <laughs> oh, it, definitely. <laughs> and, of course, my guests are talking about the book off, which we will be doing a bit later on. This is where each of them gets three minutes to tell us about a book they love and think that we should all read. But before we get there... It's time to talk about both of your books. And uh, Joe, I'll start with you and A Terrible Kindness, which is a coming-of-age tale. It tells the story of a young embalmer called William. And there'll be some listeners who have read it and love it and want to hear you talk about it. And there'll be some listeners who are joining us thinking, oh, yes, I've, I've seen that book and someone mentioned it. And for those that haven't got to it yet, perhaps you could start by telling us what it's about. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's about a young embalmer, William Lavery, who has just qualified. He's the youngest in the country, and he's just passed his exams with unprecedented results in both practical and written work. So the story opens um, in October 1966, the day after his graduation, and he's at the annual Embalmer's Dinner Dance in Nottingham, where his success is going to be celebrated. But a telegram arrives from Abervan, where a coal waste tip has ploughed down a mountainside, killing 116 children. So William and other embalmers from throughout the country drive through the night to help prepare the bodies for the parents to identify. So the story follows him over the next few hours, these deeply significant hours in his life at Abervan. But then it reels back to show um, William's life leading up to this point, showing how he went to Abervan with his own loss and trauma, um, and how we see how the death of his father when he was only eight sort of cracked apart the affectionate but sort of dysfunctional family. Um, and then we see as a scholarship boy chorister in Cambridge he has a really happy time he has an exceptional voice that makes a deep friendship with a boy called Martin a big character with a big loyalty to William but the time there as a boy chorister comes to an abrupt and quite dramatic end again really as the result of this these cracks in his family relationships so then he decides to follow his uncle in the embalming um, family business against his mother's wishes, who wants him to pursue a musical career. And so then we see him training as an embalmer in Stepney, um, where he falls in love with Gloria Finch. And that takes us up to the mm. point where he goes to Abervan. And then after Abervan, he's, he's got PTSD, his marriage is suffering, and he's, something needs to give because he's reaching rock bottom. So he goes back to Cambridge. He reconnects with his old friend Martin and with his musical roots, helping his friend Martin with the choir for the homeless. And that sort of, that opens something in him. It moves something in him and he's able to start to deal with the things he needs to deal with. And that ultimately takes him back to Abervan, um, where he can make peace with himself and those around him. And am I right in thinking that actually the the germ of the idea for this book came when you were researching something completely different then you read a story in in the library is that right yes that's right it was some conference papers of um of the uh, gathered um embalmers and undertakers in great britain and i was reading about something else and then i just saw this article by the embalmers of great britain and i just thought well, what what would that be um and read it and just was absolutely spellbound by this heroic kindness that they that they demonstrated hmm. i mean it's a it's a fabulous book and I, I want to talk more about it and, and also about your trip over to uh to belfast i think it was to to do some interviews um miranda if i could uh, talk to you about the paper palace though for a moment we've mentioned cape cod already and this is a place that you've spent many summers as a child i believe um w what was it that that made you want to set your novel there was it just always going to be about that place you know as as the first book that you've written um I think so yes in a way I, I wanted it's a place that uh, sort of grounded my life and had a profound impact on me and when I started writing the Paper Palace, which was a very long time ago, actually, um, and then put it away in a drawer. I started at the time three books, and they all were completely different genres, and they all started in the same place. So I think the answer to that is probably yes. Uh, so yeah, and it's and 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 though a lot of the novel is set there, it's also set, of course, in other places. But the the twenty four hour day mm. is set in a place very akin to where I was raised. And um, so the stage set is is very accurate. The story is not. 
Um, thank God for me. But um, the <laughs> but the stage sets are some of them are, are real, and certainly that one. And as you said, it's told over a twenty four hour period, but also a 50-year period. So can you just set up the story for those that won't have read this yet and maybe introduce us to, to Elle? Absolutely. So the Paper Palace is, as you just said, it's set in two different time periods, it, 50 years in one woman's life and 24 hours in her life. And in a sense, both uh, represent an entire life in their different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a story of one woman's life, Elle Bishop, um, who is around 50 years old, married, very happily married with three children. And she's at her mother's old summer camp, which is a rundown, not a fancy camp that, you know, a lot of people imagine when they think of Cape Cod, they think <laughs> of kind of the a part of the Cape with the yachts and the Kennedys and well-trimmed lawns and, and you know, whale belts and so on. Uh, the outer Cape where I grew up and where this takes place is a completely different landscape. It's a beautiful but very rough landscape, high, high dunes uh, that some of what you can't, many of what you can't possibly get down, um, they're too high, uh, that go out to this rough Atlantic. It's, uh, you know, dirt roads and paths and artists and uh, it's this place where you can get lost. And it's a it's a deeply, I would say, passionate landscape, unlike what most people associate with Cape Cod. Um, in any event, so Elle is at her family's rundown summer camp and she wakes up at the beginning of the book. She wakes up um, hour one, as it were, uh, and goes for a swim in the in the pond. The house is set on a pond, a freshwater pond that is walking distance to the ocean. And she takes this swim during which she remembers what she did the night before. Something rather awful, which is her mother's having a dinner party and the guests are all there. And for some reason, for the first time in their 40 year friendship, uh, she and her best friend, Jonas, um, go out the back door during the dinner party and have unbelievably hot sex. And um, she's never done anything like this before. Her marriage is great, as I said. And so when the book opens, she realizes she's at a crossroads. Jonas is the man she always thought she would marry, who she's loved all her life, but because of something terrible they did in their childhood, um, they could never, ever be together. Um, Her husband, Peter, is British, and he is uh, a really interesting, he's a writer, a journalist, very different type. Jonas is a painter. He's, you know... He's Daniel Day-Lewis in Last of the Mohicans, let's, let's put it that way. He's you know, a creature of nature and passion and, you know, and Peter looks really good in a suit, right? Um, anyway, so over the next 24 hours, Elle has to just choose the life she wants. And there's no bad choice because first, what you get to know over the 50 years is why. And so there's a mystery that kind of runs through its core, which is not a, a, a sort of a whodunit, but a why done it. Um, and the 20, the 50 years is told in pieces, seminal moments for her that lead her and uh, end actually the day before as she's stepping outside to to have sex with with Jonas. And then it's the day and the decision. And it's just such a fab read. And, you know, it really it really took me there as well, Miranda. I mean, I haven't been actually to Cape Cod, but I felt, I sort of feel like I have a bit now. And I think I highly recommend it. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) It is very, very beautiful place. And and thus far unspoiled because it's part Mm. of a national park. So it's where where we are. And so um, there's miles of of coastline with no homes on them. And, you know, you can get, as I say, if you if you live there, you're in the know. But it's not a fancy place at all. The people are old intellectuals and sort of bohem- preppy bohemians, maybe. Mm. Have have people tried to come and find it, Miranda, since the book's been out? Have you had pilgrims? <laughs> no, I mean you can't find you can't find it unless you know where to look. Um, and it's not a, a literal description of where it is. So 
but they better not because my that was the first question you know my family asked <laughs> if yeah. this happens we will never forget yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and i should just say very quickly that the novel is of course about this it's about her it's not about the two men i mean the no. two men are sort of representative but i think it's about growing up with divorce it has to do with sexual abuse and being a survivor, it's about the choices one makes that um, lead you to make, you know, that lead your life completely in one direction or another, and and um, and facing an, an you know life choice where you want to determine who I'm going to be in the future at age fifty, which I yeah. think sort of COVID has raised for a lot of us. In fact, although it wasn't written for during or you know COVID, but that we all think that you know. More, about mortality maybe in a slightly more present way I agree I think that's absolutely true um, and as you say you you wrote this qu- quite a long time ago I certainly started writing a long time so it wasn't anything to do with Covid it probably wasn't even on the agenda was it when God, you no. actually were th- no. No, no, no. <laughs> five years six years ago at this point yeah. I think yeah. yeah yeah and how how long has it taken for a terrible kindness to arrive Joe? well from first idea to to now a long time um i think i think i started mm. interviewing in 2016 maybe but i have to say after i'd done the interviews and i then i put it aside and i was working on other things so actually i, I think i wrote it quite quickly once once i'd done the research and i was ready to go i think so yeah. maybe maybe three years if you dis- discount the research part we, when we spoke about this before you said oh you know it, it's it's daunt it's sort of a a daunting responsibility to write about Abervan. And in fact, you told me a story, which I'd love you to to tell the listeners about going to speak to some embalmers and, and that, you know, that experience with them. And I think that probably sealed it in your mind as being okay. Yes, or a possibility. Yes. So, so I'd read the account of, of the embalmers at Abervan. And so then I got in touch with the Institute of Embalmers and I said, are any of these men still alive? And could I talk to any of them? And so the woman I spoke to said, there, there are some still alive, but I would want to talk to them first because understandably this is a sensitive area. So, but then she got back fairly quickly and she said, this one guy is, is happy to talk to you. And he was in Belfast. So I flew out to see him. I mean, it's interesting because I wasn't a published novelist at this point. I had no, you know, no guarantees, but I was just, just driven. I just had to go and talk to him. And so we, we chatted in the cafe of the, of the airport and he was charming as, as, as so many Irish people are just lovely chat, chat, chat. And then, and then we settled and he just said, you need to leave Abba Van well alone. Um, and so, so I just then asked, started asking about questions. Anyway, it turned out he hadn't spoken to anybody about this in 40 years, nobody. And he started talking and four and a half hours later, he stopped talking. And then wow. he said, maybe this is a story that you could tell. And so, you know, I would never say that was permission, but I, I, it made me think, okay, th- this, is, this is something I could possibly try and do. And it's brilliant. So, oh, <laughs> thank I, you. Yeah. It is, well, it is, Joe. And, you know, you should, because it could have, as I said, the responsibility of doing something like this must have been something that you really weighed up and you have approached it so sensitively and, and in the right way. Because also, I think it's important to say, it's a it's a book about family, isn't it? It's a book about the power of love. It's not a book about yes. the disaster. No, it's not. And that's right. And that, that's, that was always, it was about, yeah, it was about one person who went, an, an imaginative telling of a person who went using really heavily you know leaning really heavily on the accounts that I was given um and I would mm. never I personally would never have attempted to write a novel about a person who lived in Abervan or you know I just would wouldn't have gone there but this felt somebody yeah. from the outside going in coming out again I, I felt that was that was okay to to have a go at always with every, as I've said before with every sentence trying to do it as respectfully as I could Mm. And and some people have said, why didn't you make up a disaster? And it just wouldn't have felt grounded. It would be almost, you know, I mean, nobody said to Sebastian Foltz, why didn't you make up a war? You know, there's a lot of people really hurt in the First World War. I mean, I, I know there are some differences, but it just felt it was about this disaster. You know, this was the disaster to mm. which these people went. So, I think also, Joe, that, that if you had made one up, what happens in that situation is readers and reviewers and uh, everyone sort of draws a comparison anyway. They go, well, it sounds like exactly. Abervan, for example. Yeah, you know, exactly. and you think, well, exactly. yeah, 
okay so yeah it's yeah. I, I agree with you it's to write a, about and around the real event is is probably more powerful yes I would, yeah I would say. and I was yeah. was very hugely relieved when the Welsh press said that um it this book does not appropriate or invade the experience of Aberfan and I was just I could almost breathe again once I'd read that so yes. that was great <laughs> yeah um Miranda I'm I'm fascinated to know more about your role at HBO because that sounds like it was a fantastic job for for 10 years and I imagine it probably influenced your writing because I I've as I said found the descriptions in this book incredibly visual uh you know first yeah uh thank you uh, first of all I guess um I should just say that that my time at HBO was a very long time ago now because I was there sort of during the heyday. I started when the department was uh, was begun. I had no experience in that area whatsoever. Um, so my first show there was The Sopranos. That was our first ser- drama series. Oh, I've heard of it. Yeah, uh, it was uh, it was okay. <laughs> yeah, it was okay. And The Wire, which is actually probably my personal favorite, and and so on. Um, I think to that point. Uh, you know, w- reading thousands of scripts where dialogue is so uh, obviously prominent, but you have to bring your imagination to the visual. And then when you see it, uh, you know, the way that it is sort of cut together, the way you can suspend a moment. Um, huh. it, it, so I think at the dialogue piece definitely... Um, came out of that but I think also for me the uh, I've been accused of of maybe ironically spareness (laughs) Um, because it's (laughs) I I wouldn't say that the dialogues are spare but that the sort of you know this for me the cardinal rule that I would take away from HBO I think is that of all script writing which is show me don't tell me um and in dialogue, right? Mm. And so that for me was really helpful. And, I, and I've always thought visually. I grew up in a family of painters and, and um, if you know, painters and their muses because I, a different time of life. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Sounds and fabulous. So, yes, right? I've always, my family is, you know, my mother's most important thing for her was how to set a table. So that, and, and that, by the way, that was real, that was probably more influential for me in many ways to the theme of the book anyway than the HBO experience, which was wonderful to be there in, in its golden age, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and, um, but yeah, my mother's idea was that, a, a, you know, a beautiful table has to be set so that after the meal, these, the, the remains are what, what comes, what is left is as beautiful as what came before. And so my stepfather would actually, as a painter would actually paint you know the table wow yeah after you know she won you know so in a way that's a huge piece of what uh, sort of a a running theme um in the paper palace i need i need to up up my table game yeah absolutely and you know the the novel starts with the with the remains of a dinner party the night before Mm. and sort of ends to a certain extent with them setting the table before dinner Mm. Uh, that comes toward the end of the novel um and the table itself is what sets off all of her feelings in a way, uh, you know, remembering this man she's passionately in love with this morning, definitely, you know, by picking up the glass he he drank his wine from and putting it to her lips. It's not just, you know, it's kind of, well, now what comes what comes after, you know, the, the act? <laughs> yeah. So to speak. I'm, I'm always fascinated in literature especially and in life with with father-son relationships and I wondered if you were fascinated with mother-daughter relationships because obviously there's there's an important relationship in this novel between Ellen and her mother Wallace uh well yeah absolutely and in a way the arc of their relationship is more sort of important to me and her with her sister as well I think I'm so interested in the things, not just the choices we make, but the choices we inherit 
and even our the you know the way our parents love lives can actually you know change our lives or determine the direction of our lives not not just kind of and in this there are generations of women so there's not just ellen her mother wallace there's wallace's mother and whoever comes before that but the decision that wall and these are all really powerful women who have all gone through terrible things and found different ways in each of them to survive that or, or, or to make a choice about that. And each of those choices is what leads Elle to make her choice. So I think for, for one thing, that's something that just really interests me. You know, if, for those of you who've read it, you know, if Wallace's mother uh, hadn't taken her husband's side, as it were, uh, Wallace wouldn't have become the person she is, who's, who's both hilarious but also emotionally guarded. Mm. Um, if she hadn't become that person when Elle goes through her trauma, would she have been able to come to her mom? Would they have had, you know, you can't answer questions, but you can certainly ask them, right? And what yeah. will happen now to Elle's daughter? And so that sort of trickle-down emotional economics has always really interested me, but also just the the relationship of mother and daughter you know and they're sparring but their love and it's really her mother in the end who sort of gives her permission to make whichever choice she wants you know mm. a conversation in the end it really is the, the permission of a mother that she feels she has hurt and lied to uh, gives you know, sort of forgiving her in a way redeeming yeah. yeah um as well as these two fabulous books there's, I always ask my guests what else they've been reading so that we can give our listeners a few more uh, books to put on the to-be-read pile. Um, Joe, have you found any time, I know you've been busy the last few weeks, have you found any, any time to sort of read over the last couple of months and is, is there anything you want to recommend? Yes, yes, I never stop reading really. Um, so it's always <laughs> at night in the bath, at hot bath and read for an hour. Um, but yeah, two, two. That an I hour? Oh, that's One, good, wow. Yes, well I done. know, you can get get through quite a lot in an hour so the first one is been out for a while it's the seal woman's gift by sally magnuson and i'm surprised that this book isn't talked about more so the so starting point is this notorious apparently i of course have never heard of it historical event in 1627 where pirates raided the coast of iceland and abducted 400 people into slavery in the algiers and among those people was a pastor and his wife and their children. And so the book, imaginative then, follows the wife, Asta, as she finds herself separated mm. from her husband and all but one of her children and living in a beautiful, sun-filled Muslim palace. And the contrast from her rural, weather-beaten, cold way of life in Iceland to being in this sunny, opulent Islamic country, it's a phenomenal imaginative exploration with all the challenges to her heart, mind and her faith. So that's that one. And then the other one, it's not quite out yet. This is the joy of being an author. You get proof copies. I just love it. So this book is almost out. It's out beginning of February. And it's The Colony by Audrey McGee. She was um, a shortlist of the Women's Prize for Fiction with her book, The Undertaking. But this is about two men arriving on a remote Irish island. One's an artist. He wants to make paintings. He's come from London. And he wants to make paintings mm. for an exhibition to go back to London and hopefully resurrect his waning reputation. And the other is a Frenchman passionate about languages threatened with extinction. And he comes every year to study the language on the island and track how it might be eroding. So we have two men, outsiders, both there for their own professional and personal reasons. And then there's the people on the island and how they feel about these outsiders and what they're doing and saying. So it's fantastic evocation of landscape, art, language. It's just amazing. And about so much more, but I can't go into it now. So that's The Colony by Audrey McGee. Fantastic. Thank you, Joe. And what about you, Miranda? What have you been reading and enjoying recently? Um, well, I'm trying to get caught up. I didn't, I think a lot of writers don't read a lot, or many do, but I don't read a lot when I'm writing. And yeah. since I was writing for a, a, far too long, um, I, I feel like I got <laughs> really far behind. So some of the books that I, I've read recently are books that everybody else read, you know, a while back. Um, I, I, although my a Sorrow and Bliss is a, is a novel by uh, Meg Mason, that I think is fantastic. Um, uh -huh. And I read very recently, it deals with marriage and mental health issues, but it's, and it's painful, but it's hilarious in places. I think 
she manages to this balance between, I mean, some of the, I laughed out loud in a book that's about the sort of tragic personal events. And then of course the end, you know, well, I'm not going to give away the ending, but um, it's the, the characters are brilliant. And the sister relationship is just so funny, but mm. poignant. And I thought uh, there's a, there's, I like sort of, to a certain extent, sort of spare writing, not writing in, in which it's all character speaking and um, not sort of what's that characters, you know, what do they call it? Like not internet, there's a word. Uh, but anyway, so I love Sorrow and Bliss. I think that's fantastic. Um, I actually have been listening to, I should, I should say, and I really recommend everybody go back and read Sense and Sensibility. Um, I've been listening to the Rosamund Pike version, and oh. it is so modern a novel. I, you know, Pride and Prejudice was always one of my Desert Island books, as it were. But Sense and Sensibility is the funniest book. There are two or three pages of dialogue at one point in which both characters are lying to each other in the, without, you know, they're just being lovely but they're lying to each other the entire conversation and you know it, but she's so wry. And then there's a character who comes in and they, somebody says, oh, isn't this a lovely cottage? And she says, you know, and the character goes, no, it's disgusting. I mean, that's the word she uses. He's a moron, he says in front of the person, you know, it, it's, it's a no holds bar, you know, look at, at sort of social you know social life but it's so ironic and really funny and so and this is my new discovery is if you listen to certain books that were always my favorites mm. and you he you i mean i was listening to middlemarch on a long drive and i was giggling i mean how many people <laughs> giggle their way yeah. through middlemarch right just to say that yeah i just also read a, a gentleman in moscow which so many people you know, no by Amor Tulse, but I thought that was a wonderful novel. I, you know, it's a, about a man who, you know, and a little girl who is confined to one building, but but mm. finds within it, you know, m um, multitudes of life and not a claustrophobia ever, but a way of, you know, it's a sort of incredible metaphor, I think, for looking inward instead of looking outward for the meaning of life. I, so I really loved that. Um, and I read a lot of poetry as well. So, uh, so I've been, um, you know, kind of dipping into Eileen Miles and, and, you know, various people, but those are a couple of books that I've read a lot of other books, I will say to get caught up that I liked, <laughs> yeah. but I didn't maybe love. So, yeah. yeah. That's a great list. And actually the, um, the Amor Tal's book, uh, gentleman in moscow is in, an interesting one to have a have come to around lockdown uh because i think you know i read it years and years ago but thinking about it now actually in the in a sort of covid situation and when we've all been a lot more indoors and right. had to stay in that would it might have a slightly different um feel to it maybe yeah um yeah and uh, lincoln highway is his his new one and i can recommend that one as well if you're looking for uh, it's on my list of course it's on my it's on my guilt pile next to my yes. bed <laughs> yeah. hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place with linkedin you can hire professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com people today millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, it's time now for the book off. And this is where each of my guests gets three minutes to tell us about a book that they love and they think we should all read. And uh, Joe and Miranda, you don't have to use all of your three minutes but if you're still speaking at the three minute mark you will either be honked out by the bicycle horn or rung out by the school bell uh, so we've got a little bit of admin to do before we get into this um as you have traveled the furthest miranda to be here would you like to go first or would you like to go second well hmm um <laughs> I think I'm going to go second, not out of cowardice, but just so I have an, three extra minutes to, to prepare. <laughs> <laughs> no problem at all. Uh, and Joe, at uh, the three-minute mark, yes. as I said, I'll be, I'll be honking or ringing you out. Which, which one would you like? I want to be honked because in Cambridge, I've always wanted on my bike to have one of those, but I always feel it would be just too frightening for people. I give someone a heart attack, but I love the sound. Yeah. The, the honker is for you then. Fantastic. Yeah, okay. um, right then, I'm going to put three minutes on the clock for you, Joe, going first. Okay. Uh, this is uninterrupted to tell us about the book of your choice. Before we start the timer, just tell us the book you're putting forward, please. It is A Manual for Cleaning Women by Lucia Berlin. Fantastic. Okay. All right. It's over to you then. Three minutes on the clock to tell us about A, ma a Manual for Cleaning Women. Over to you. Well, I was sent this book out of the blue by a friend. I'd never heard of Lucia Berlin, but he has great taste, so I dived right in and fell in love. It was published in 2015, and the book went to the New York Times bestseller list in its second week, and then she rose to sudden literary fame. Sadly, this was 11 years after her death, and this book outsold all her previous books combined. So I will tell you a bit about her life, because the stories in the book have been described as autofiction or self-fiction. So... Born in 1936 in Alaska, she was plagued by ill health, including double scoliosis from the age of 10, which meant she spent periods of her life wearing a steel brace. In photographs, she's beautiful and has an undeniable air of glamour to her. Um, living in many different places, she worked as a switchboard operator, hospital ward clerk, emergency room nurse, high school teacher and cleaning woman, while writing, raising four sons and struggling with alcoholism, from which she was eventually in recovery. In the mid-90s, she went to the University of Colorado and spent six years as a visiting writer and ultimately associate professor, where she was a popular and beloved teacher. And she died on her 68th birthday in 2004. She's likened to Raymond Carver. Her gritty stories take place in the inner city, the slums, on night buses and late, la late night laundromats. The characters are lonely children, pregnant teenagers, lost middle-aged women, often alcoholic. She's also likened to Grace Paley, but she very much has her own style, combining this eagle-eyed detail, humour, and the messiness of humanity, but always, I feel, written with compassion for that messiness um, by her. I teach creative writing, and I often use stories from this collection to show you don't need a lot of words to tell a big story. You just need the right ones. Macadam, for instance, is 150 words long, and yet she manages to tell the story of three generations three generations of women beautifully in just these few lines. So I want people to read this book because it's wonderful writing. Her characters are vivid, funny, infuriating, and also because it's testimony to her life, which was one of considerable struggle and heartache, but out of which she managed to produce these stories of raw and ragged beauty. But her writing is by no means ragged. It's beautifully, beautifully honed. Um, she said, this is a quote, I think... Uh, Writers, I think, are people who need to affirm, need an affirmation about their life. And to me, it's a way to make things positive, not in a corny way, but to make beauty out of negative things or difficult times or just make sense. So, end quote, 
I think it's always sad when someone doesn't receive the recognition they deserve in their own lifetime. So I'm really keen to champion Lucia Berlin and this book, A Manual for Cleaning Women. Whoa, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> Ten seconds to spare as well, Joe. You're such a pro, <laughs> such a pro. Fantastic. Wow, I love that. Thank you so much uh, for that pitch. And we will return and talk about it a little bit in a little bit. Uh, you can take a breather now. Have a sip of water. Mm. Have a glass of water. Because I'm putting three minutes back. Have a glass of water. Because I'm putting three minutes back on the clock for you, Miranda. And before we start, could you just tell us the book that you're putting forward, please? Yes, I can. Um, because I'm apparently you know, really want to lose the contest. I'm going to try to um, pitch <laughs> The Lord of the Rings in three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I, if anyone can do it, you can do it, Miranda. Uh, it's three minutes on the clock then for you to tell us all about The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Okay, well, I think the first question is why on earth I would choose to pitch this book. It's like Coles to Newcastle, one of the greatest novels ever written in Britain, and in fact written as a kind of new mythology taken from Beowulf, from the Arthurian, a lot, you know, the Arthurian mort d'Arthur and and it's war and peace, and it's Othello, and it's romantic, and it's this incredible adventure. And it's at its heart really about the fight for decency, about wars. You said earlier um, about Sebastian Fox, and in fact about Joe's book, that you know, writing about and around a real experience you prefer, and I'm going to argue against that and say that this one is uh, one of the great war novels ever written, partly because it can be applied to any of the great wars and dictators. And as you know, Tolkien himself said that it wasn't an allegory, uh, but uh, for atomic power, he's in that case, but, uh, but the power of, um, you know, exerted for domination over decency. And, you know, I think this book was uh, inspired for him out of World War One and the Battle of the Somme, where several of his very best friends died. Um, the wasteland that Frodo and Sam come to at the end is could be any, you know, is trench warfare, but it could be any of those things. And so, you know, clearly, it's. I feel like it's written for the British um, as you know, a country that fought, you know, many times in the last century, and I'm sure will again for their values and for key and and sacrifice i mean more men died in world war one more british men than in any other war i think more men in general and you know i think it's in, so it's inspired by those battles that the british have gone through hundreds of battles over hundreds of years fought and lost and won for an for an idea sort of for a myth in a sense and so if you've read the novel you don't mean, you know, I don't, I'm not pitching it to you. If you haven't, and if you haven't, because maybe you think, you know, it's fantasy, so it's, you know, the the, the genre of the nerd, um, I am going to disagree with you completely. It is romantic. It's a page turner. It's a seminal novel, not just for the world, but particularly written for and about the British, inspired uh, and fin because he was of his, of C.S. Lewis and his close relationship with C.S. Lewis. Um, I couldn't put it down. It was the first novel my father ever gave me after my parents got divorced. I was 12. I was on a long bus trip, eight hours alone. He handed it to me and I looked up and I was at my destination. You cannot miss this book. If you do, you've missed one of the great experiences of life. Oh, fantastic. With also 10 seconds left to go, Miranda. It's like, this is, you know. And what, what a, what a, a TV pitching line right at the end there. I love that. You must have worked for HBO. Um, well done. <laughs> I'm at a disadvantage. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It was a long time ago. Two incredibly different books and two wonderful pictures. Um, <clears throat> now, I must say, Joe, uh, I don't know of A Manual for Cleaning Women um, and I don't know of Lucia and uh, hearing you talk about uh, just made me think right why don't I and I guess part of the reason for your pitch and indeed talking about this book is so that people like me and other listeners go right I'm going to kind of check out Lucia Berlin because it sounds like a wonderful book and her life sounds I mean obviously 
a tough one, but yeah, an amazing one at the same time. That's right. That's right. And I and I, I should say actually, I mean, I, I think you know she she was an extraordinary writer, an extraordinary person. Um, there's also for me, there's a huge draw to American literature because when I was um, 21, mm. I went to live in America, and I decided that I was just going to read American literature while I lived there. And there was a great second-hand bookstore around the just down the road, and I just read and read and read and read and I just read through the sort of the you know obviously not the whole canon but a lot of the modern American literature and just loved it and she just she just Mm. takes you into that oh my gosh does she take you into a sort of well in the same way that Miranda's book did you know I had some fabulous east coast holidays at Nag's Head which I know is different to to Kate Cobb but still (laughs) there's a certain similarity of those great big fantastic holiday intergenerational holiday homes and so I love to be taken there but I think she's important I think she you know she really um she she really talks about important things in her work and it was absolutely out of her own struggle um and i just think it's tragic that she didn't have that success and although it's lovely that she was such a love teacher she was so good as a teacher um yes. so that's that's great yeah i mean that was a lovely part of the pitch and then obviously you know you're talking about this book that i think you said 11 years after she actually died that it was published and um and got this recognition and yes that's sad but also what a lovely thing you know to to have left this mark um on the world of literature um and then you're sort of you likened or she has been likened to that Raymond Carver which I just was instantly I you know my ears pricked up and I thought well I'm gonna (laughs) love it then you know um yes and the fact that that you use this phrase eagle-eyed detail and humour and I just thought yes I I think I know what you mean I think I know the sort of writing that 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 is you know which I would love and you know the way she because she was you know for a long time she worked in an ER ward and she she also worked on the switchboard in the hospital and so she has such hilarious stories about the Mm. doctor's voices and what all the switchboard operators used to surmise about the doctor's voices it's very very funny as well um, and quirky yeah yeah yeah. It sounds fab. It sounds absolutely fab. It does. Um, and yes, now, Miranda, Lord of the Rings is... Not, I mean, literally, when you you even said it, I think, um, one of the you know greatest novels ever. It, it just is. There'll be many people listening who go, yes, I know, because I've read it. Um, and some that may think, oh, yeah, it was all, I've always meant to get round to it. And I think that was another big part of your pitch, is that, you know, it's that... There are some people that won't have read it yet, and they might just be a bit put off by it being, oh, just that fantasy nonsense, right. you know, or I've seen the film. It holds a very special place in my heart for, for several reasons. One, because my dad absolutely loves this book, and he read it when he was a kid. And I think the same thing as you was just engrossed, you know, couldn't put it down. Um, and then introduced me to it via uh, a ra- a radio play recording of it that the BBC did and that's how I first sort of discovered the book and then I read it latterly so yeah I mean all those things that you said about it I absolutely agree it is a complete page turner it isn't just fantasy the war I hadn't I suppose I'd not really stopped to think as deeply about the war novel comparison I mean yes obviously it makes sense thinking about when he was writing but I hadn't actually thought that so I just that was really interesting to hear you talk about that because as soon as you did I thought yeah of course of course it is and that that one of those very last scenes in the wasteland I was like oh goodness yeah we're that's it World War One um so you're right for anyone who hasn't do read this book because it is marvelous and I I I have never reread it because I don't know what well no have you you you've reread it have you I, I've reread Countless it probably times. ten ten times. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, te- so do you get do you get just as much or more out of it every time? Because I think every that's why time. I okay. All right. Every time. I Re-read think that's it. why I've been hesitant because I loved it so much that I don't want to ruin that. If you know what I mean, you know that. Yes. How old I have were you? When, how old were you when you first read it? Good question. Four fifteen. Right. I thought you Maybe. would say four or five then. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's a genius. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I think that you know. I told. I think you must reread it. But do you know that thing where there's books that you read when you were in your teens, say, or even well, yeah, that yeah. that that are so huge in your mind, but you go back to them now and you think, 
well, but hold on, all those descriptions, those they're, they're not actually in it. Um, mm. I, I wonder sometimes if that's because, you know, uh, for example, some of these books I go back and read and they were my favorite books in the world. Uh, and I think that they are. And then I throw them across the room in an absolute rage at the end, right? Um, one of them being The Great Gatsby, which, you know, of course the ending is incredible and the book's incredible, but I was like, it's so withheld in a way. And, you know, I remember every tree, every detail, every flower, every <laughs> smell. And I think we bring so much imagination in a, when we are younger in a certain way and visualize our own things. I had the same experience with one of my other favorite books, uh, The King Must Die by Mary Reynolds, which I think everybody also should read. And when I went back, you know, I was talking about the sexy and the snakes and these incredible scenes and the minotaur and blah, blah. And I went back and I'm like, but it's like a line. <laughs> but in my mind, I was able to completely fill that in with my imagination in my head. Whereas Lord of the Rings, it is all there. It's still all there every time. Right, and right. and I think it's, you know, I, I said earlier, Pride and Prejudice is one of my Desert Island disc books. And the other one is The Lord of the Rings, which I think people are surprised by when they meet me and they go, really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I think, it's like, really? You know, they, they think, you know, I'm, they think they're sort of, oh, we thought you were much more sophisticated than that. I'm like, it is sophisticated. Oh, yeah. It is difficult it contains every genre you know yeah. and i think and it's so important to me anyway you know to and i think this is why the war piece i focused on today because mm, yeah. all of those the you know the knights of the round table whatever whether it's beowulf or, or war and peace or yeah. you know they come out of the fight i mean the adventure of the epic i think is often you know the fight to keep the good alive. Let's put it that way, and this and sacrifice. You know, and and on that way, there are incredible sacrifices and archetypal, you know, characters and so on and so forth. Um, you know, but I think the, there's a line I'll just quickly read if you, if you'll let me, if you'll allow me. We have time um, because you know, as I say, I think it's sort of about you know, men fighting about. You know, or the or life that we have lived is still on um, the good the good side, huh? You know, is still about <laughs> you know sometimes fighting against insurmountable odds and sometimes losing and sometimes winning, but that you nevertheless have to do it. Um, and at the very end, Frodo, you know, the main character, or one of, he's talking to Sam and he says, "I tried to save the Shire, right, and it has been saved, but not for me." I must often, it must often be so, Sam, when things are in danger, someone has to give them up, lose them so that others may keep them. And I think that is, the, that's what got the Battle of the Somme was, and that's mm -hmm. what Vietnam was, and that's what, you know, well, actually yeah. Vietnam was a stupid war in my opinion, but, but the, those who fought in it, um, you know, lost their lives for their beliefs, unless yep. they were drafted against their will. But, you know, those who joined up and, and uh, you know, there's the courage, decency, and then an entire language in written in Elvish, you know, yes. really? Yeah, I know. With poetry yeah. and, 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 like, long epic poems. You know, that's <laughs> insane. It's amazing and beautiful and imaginative. So, yeah. Okay, now I want to read a short extract. Is that okay, Joe? First five lines of one of my favourite stories of the collection, My Jockey. I like working in emergency. You meet men there, anyway. Real men, heroes, firemen and jockeys. They're always coming into emergency rooms. Jockeys have wonderful x-rays. They break bones all the time, but just take themselves up and ride the next race. Their skeletons look like trees, like reconstructed brontosaurs. Thank you. Just wanted her to get a bit of air, okay. air no, no, I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this is a new thing you've introduced to the uh, book off here. The sort of to pick a line from the book. Maybe maybe this is going to, something that's going to continue throughout the series. Now we'll just introduce that in. You know, you eat, everyone gets to <laughs> to pick a line from yeah. the book. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I don't know if you have been to 
Oxford. Miranda, I know you've spent some time in London. You have. Have you? My son, um, my son just got a, a graduate degree there, so I went to his graduation. Oh, great. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, yeah. did you by any chance go to a pub called the Eagle and Child? I didn't because it was COVID and everything was closed. Of course, you couldn't. Okay, well, <laughs> when you come back over, hopefully in the not-too-distant future, give me and Joe a call. Because we're gonna oh, we're gonna yes, head over go. to Oxford with you, and we're gonna yes. go to the Eagle and Child. And the reason we're gonna go there is because Miranda, this is honestly one of my favourite experiences ever. It's where Tolkien wrote a lot of that book. And if you sit in a particular seat in the pub, it is the exact description of where Strider first appears in the inn. Oh my God! Is he in the corner, but with his knees up and the hat over his head? And if you, know- you take the book and read it, and then look across, and I'll show you exactly where to be. It is you see how he wrote it, and it okay, is. Okay, we're mo- doing this. Yeah, oh, also that way great. I get to meet both of you, but Joe. Absolutely, I, we are doing this. Definitely. I'm. Are you up for it, Joe? Absolutely. I'd love it. I'd love to do that. Love to do it. Excellent. It's also I, where I, he had doing it in yeah. that case. Yeah, because it wasn't just Tolkien. I mean, C.S. Lewis, Charles Williams. Yeah, they're all there. They all used to go to that pub together. So. Okay, well, uh, that's a mu- that is then a must. I also wanted to say in 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 you know that my first son, I wanted the one who was just Oxford. I wanted to name him on the shortlist was Strider, and instead, my husband gave me a figurine of Aragorn uh, when Lucas Lucas was born. <laughs> As a sort of, yeah, you know, you didn't get yeah. the name, but hey. <laughs> well, good, that's Fantastic. settled then. You're coming over. We're all going to Oxford. We're going to go have a pint Brilliant. in the Eagle and Child. And then I think, Joe, it's only fair, isn't it, that we get invited to Los Angeles and then we'll go and, you know, do do, do the Raymond Chandler thing over there or something. Yeah, definitely. Okay, <laughs> I, would prefer, I would say come to the Cape. Come to the Cape. OK, all right. Well, we'll oh, come okay. to the Cape, whichever, whichever we're, one we're, we're invited where to. Where Tennessee Williams wrote many of his plays. There we go. All right. There we go. We'll, we'll hold you to that later in the year. Um, I love both of these pictures, and we've sort of been talking about both books for ages more, because, and, that, and that's testament to them. Um, oh, I've got to pick. I've got to pick one, haven't I? Um, and I, I think it's. I think I'm going to pick Lucia Berlin. I think because I think maybe she needs the recognition. Would you agree, Miranda? No. <laughs> I tried to get tried to get you in on side there, but no, no of, course, of course, of course. Joe because... and I is both de- debut novelists, first time novelists, right, Joe? We're both yes. debut novelists, I think. I yeah. yeah, yeah. We have to. We gotta we give are. it up for yeah. For the, for the I know, I know. Yeah, but you're totally wrong. I loved both of those pictures. I would obviously choose Lord of the Rings in a heartbeat for many many things but but based on those pictures i do i never ever heard of lucia berlin and we need to we need to rectify that a little bit and a manual for cleaning women just sounds fab joe so thank you for bringing it to our attention and thank you for um also miranda making me think that it's it's time i read lord of the rings for a for a second time um, You'll love it. I'll let you know. I'll let you know okay, what I get out of Please do. It. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> I'll bring it Terrible. to the pub and we'll never leave. There you <laughs> yeah, go. That's, that's right. it. We're, we'll have a lock in. <laughs> Quarantine. <laughs> A Terrible Kindness by Joe Browning Rowe is out now and it's published by Faber and the Paper Palace by Miranda Cowley-Heller is also out now and it's published by Viking and what an absolute pleasure it's been to have both of you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for your recommendations and I look forward to our big trip to Oxford. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you for having us. Joe, lovely to meet you.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.